Welcome to LSEIQ, a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics or society. In 2008, a personal group going under the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto published a white paper setting out the fundamentals of a peer-to-peer electronic cash system called Bitcoin. This would do away with the need to rely on financial institutions acting as trusted third parties to process electronic payments. Instead, money would be sent directly from one party to another. Transactions would be verified and recorded permanently on the blockchain. This digital ledger would be distributed across a large network of computers and guard against a risk specific to digital currency that it can be fraudulently spent twice. Technology, Satoshi Nakamoto claimed, would replace the need for trust. Bitcoin was the first decentralized cryptocurrency and hundreds of others have been created since. In this episode of LSEIQ, Sue Windybank asks, are cryptocurrencies the future of money, a speculative bubble that will burst or something else? The rise of the cryptocurrency goes on. The Bitstamp exchange on Friday reporting an all-time high of close to $18,000. That's 9% up on the day, 1,700% up since the start of the year. Can it go higher? This report comes from Reuters in December 2017. Since then, Bitcoin has continued its rollercoaster of volatility and, as of mid-May 2018, when we were putting this podcast together, one Bitcoin cost only around $8,000. By the time we publish, who knows? Natasha postel Vinay is an assistant professor in LSE's Department of Economic History. I asked her if and how Bitcoin compared to other speculative bubbles that we've seen throughout history. For example, Bitcoin has been compared to tulip mania when people began speculating on tulips when they were newly introduced into the Netherlands. The price of some sought-after bulbs are claimed to have inflated to the price of a house. It's a fair comparison in the sense that there's definitely a will to compare the increase in value of Bitcoin to any other sudden, almost crazy increase in value of anything that has happened in the past. There have been uh, uh, quite a few bubbles in the past. Well, the, the very first one that people talk about is the tulip mania. So we, we might want to, to compare the two. Uh, and I think that if we did compare the two, we would actually find that uh, what's very surprising about Bitcoin is the fact that its value has increased even more than tulips have and over a much longer period of time. So I think that's what, you know, that's the really surprising thing about Bitcoin compared to actually any other bubble in the past is that the, the, the huge increase has been uh, volatile, yes, but also sustained over, you know, eight years, which is absolutely unheard of. So the tulip mania happened over just two years in the beginning of the 17th century in in the Netherlands. And now, of course, there's another debate. There's actually a debate about the... There's always debates in history about anything. And there's a debate about whether the tulip mania actually occurred, um, as you might, might expect. Uh, so some people even doubt that there was actually a tulip mania. But if we compare it with a bubble that is at least a bit less controversial, which would be uh, the South, South Sea bubble in the early um, 18th century in England, 
in the same kind of bubble in France, actually going on at the same time, the Mississippi bubble in 1720. These bubbles also occurred over, you know, a year or two. Um, and the increase, I think, in the, in the last few months, prices of these merchant companies increase, or stock prices of these merchant companies increased uh, probably by, I think, twice, maybe. They might, these prices might have tripled over a few months. That was just at the end of the bubble. That was at the worst part of the bubble. But a tripling of prices for Bitcoin is, you know, is business as, as usual over a few months. Garrick Harman is a research associate at the University of Cambridge and LSE and is one of the main academic commentators on cryptocurrencies. He is also the co-founder of a company called Mosaic, a decentralised market intelligence network which supplies research and data on cryptocurrencies, as well as a place where people can manage their portfolios. So cryptocurrencies aren't the first alternative currency, are they? What motivates the creation of a new currency? So I did an initial piece of work on alternative currencies back when I first discovered Bitcoin in 2011, looking at the history of alternative currencies. I looked at the past 500 years and saw that alternative currencies had uh, 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 basically come into existence throughout that time for various reasons. Uh, we often found that they were associated with uh, economic dislocation. So during the Great Depression in the 1930s, we saw a proliferation of alternative currencies created by towns, for example, trying to put people uh, back to work and pay them with something. Uh, we would see a banking crisis or some type of uh, um, financial crisis uh, trigger the creation of alternative currencies. Um, and then also uh, just uh, the shortage of, of small change it's referred to uh, in Britain here um, during the uh, 17th through 19th centuries, there was uh, what was called the big problem of small change, not enough pennies and half pennies and so merchants uh, the proverbial butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker took it upon themselves to create small change out of uh, different types of materials which uh, were circulated and accepted by these different different businesses. So um, a number of things uh, have, have led to the creation of alternative currencies. It's, it's no one thing. And can these historical currencies tell us anything about the trajectory of cryptocurrencies? One of the main findings from my research on alternative currencies was that they tended to die relatively quick deaths. Uh, you know, as one can imagine, if you can only use a currency with a limited number of businesses or in a, a town, uh, you know, as soon as you travel to another business or another town, that currency isn't accepted. And so they tend to be less efficient than a, a, a more standardized unit of account that's widely accepted. So uh, I think um, you know, merchant tokens are a bit of the exception to the rule. Uh, for a couple hundred years, these merchant tokens were, were used. Um, most alternative currencies tend to die pretty quickly. Um, and, and that initially made me a little bit skeptical about Bitcoin's fate as an alternative currency. And now? Well, you, you, as you get to know more about Bitcoin and its underlying technology, blockchain technology, you come to appreciate that this isn't just a currency. Uh, it's being used uh, you know, today as a store of value, as an alternative to um, gold in some cases. It, it goes by the nickname Digital Gold. It's also a technology platform that enables things that have nothing to do with currency. Uh, and the technology itself is being reapplied in various ways um, that, that in some ways support Bitcoin because it's kind of the original kind of blockchain uh, platform. You know, blockchain technology can be used for voting. It can be used for record keeping uh, can be used for uh, providing, um, you know, something like a notary kind of service, you know, through timestamps. 
Uh, and so as I came to appreciate that currency was just one part of kind of the Bitcoin and blockchain story, it, it opened me up to the possibility that this was maybe, you know, a little bit different than what we'd seen before in history. Distributed ledger technology, of which the blockchain is one example, is interesting both technologically and ideologically. Here's Tatiana Cutts, Assistant Professor in LSE's Department of Law. Yes, that's right. So cryptography is a technology or an aspect of a technology that's used to protect payments online in general. So in one sense, cryptocurrency could refer to something that we ordinarily use in financial transactions. But in fact, the term cryptocurrency refers more broadly to a particular political phenomenon in financial technology. So it's a type of technology where um, the maintenance of payment systems is slightly more open than the way in which it would ordinarily be conducted in, say, banking. And who are these people who are attracted to Bitcoin? Professor Nigel Dodd from the Department of Sociology is interested in the social nature of money. I asked him what the social life of Bitcoin looked like. Weird. Uh, it's full of men, for a start. I mean, that I guess part of what I wanted to do is understand who are these people behind this technology. The, the, the news about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is this is just technology. It's technology running itself. It's robot money. It doesn't have any humans that are involved in making decisions. That was part of the attraction of it to some of the people that support it. So I got intrigued when I started meeting crypto loonies and crypto supporters and crypto devotees, whatever one wants to call them. Um, so yeah, the demography of it was interesting. So yes, I mean, up until quite recently, still largely today, the majority of users, miners, those involved in the in the scene are male. They're quite young. Uh, they're sort of 20 to early 30s. Politically, they tend to be all over the shop, but there's a higher proportion of libertarians and anarchists among them than one would find in the general population. Um, and the to get a sense of you know, okay, so where is the social life of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency? Um, they're intensely social in, in, in an odd way. So they, they have lots of meetups. So that's where you can catch um, their social interactions going on and the way in which they talk to each other and network and debate. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the online life which is really active, so that the, 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 the main talking shop around cryptocurrency is the Reddit community, and the Bitcoin Reddit is very, very active and lively and interesting. I've argued that Bitcoin, cryptocurrency in general, has a social structure. So it's, it, it, and again, this was partly to counter some of the self-representation of Bitcoin, which was that this was an entirely flat, horizontal network with no central point of authority and no hierarchy and everybody has a vote and all this stuff. And to some degree, that, I mean, technically that's true, but in practice, it's a very hierarchical space. The Bitcoin organization, if you're talking about Bitcoin, has a very clear elite. The number of 
programmers that really understand how it works, you could count on you know fingers and toes. It's very few. So there's a kind of a, a, a techno elite as well, um, and there are key players, uh, key key political players, if you like. Um, so in terms of the decision making, I think there is a there is a hierarchy, and there are particularly influential voices, and I think that's one of the reasons why the Satoshi figure is so interesting. In your paper you say that if Bitcoin succeeds as an ideology that it will fail as a currency. What did you mean by that? So my argument about money in general is that money, whether it's gold or paper or whatever currency it might be, really does rest on um, the social dynamics around money. I mean in the most very simplistic way one has to trust that the money one has in one's pocket or one's bank account or on one's visa or on one's oyster card is going to be worth something next week otherwise you're not going to use it you're not going to take it in exchange for you're not going to accept it as payment for work or anything um, so it relies on a certain amount of commitment it relies on shared norms, obligations, expectations, um, and to some degree shared beliefs as well. Uh, the ideology of Bitcoin was initially that it was trust-free. Uh, and this was in the white paper, the original white paper that, that framed the Bitcoin experiment, if you like. And the idea was that you know, you didn't have to rely on others for this currency to operate successfully. And that was partly a reference to the classic double spend problem that, that had always been the case in, in digital currency. But it was also a reference explicitly to the problems of relying on central bankers to make good decisions. So it was all part of that discourse around when money goes wrong, it's usually politicians or bad bankers or bad central bankers or corrupt officials that make it go wrong. So the ideology around it was that this was, technology would take over, technology would do the job. We've had this argument in lots of other areas, it's not just in the area of finance, the idea that you know we can solve our problems, we can design our problems away through the use of smart technology is quite familiar. Um, so my point there was that that's never going to work with money. You know, you can't, you, there is no way in which money without human intervention, without trust, without sociality is ever going to be successful. And my point was Bitcoin has succeeded insofar as it has succeeded. It's still around. It's gone up in price by virtue of, of all of that uh, social stuff going on around it. That's why it's still there not simply because it's a good bit of coding or something, because actually it's not particularly well designed. And here's Natasha postel Vinay explaining some of the technical problems with Bitcoin. She refers to mining. This is the process whereby miners use special software to solve mathematical puzzles to confirm transactions are legitimate and add them to the ledger, the blockchain. The first miner to solve the mathematical problem is rewarded with newly created Bitcoin, Hence the mining analogy. It's actually really slow. Might be, you know, partly because of this very strange process through which bitcoins are mined and transactions are being checked. 
whereby the uh, people who are part of the network have to solve these maths problems, and which slows things down. But it also takes up a lot of actual physical space to store all of this data. And it takes, I think with Bitcoin, you can only carry out something like seven or eight transactions per second. Uh, with Ethereum, it's a little bit more, it's something like 200 transactions per second. But with Visa systems, you can, uh, you can carry out about 2,000 transactions per second. Um, so it's, it's true that it's checked by everybody, and this is great, but at the same time, it's really slow. This is another hurdle, another way in which cryptocurrencies might not have, you know, such a, a great future as some others might think. This cumbersome system also has some surprising environmental impacts. Tatiana Cutts explains. There are environmental impacts connected to Bitcoin, and this is where it's almost laughable to say that Bitcoin is more efficient in certain respects. The nature of the system is that you broadcast all of the transactions to every node in the network, and that's not efficient. It requires an incredible amount of processing power, and the um, electricity usage is phenomenal. As soon as you move from a system in which you have a centralized authority to one where you want lots of people to participate, that's the loss that you suffer. Natasha Postel-Vinay describes what has happened in Puerto Rico. Crypto entrepreneurs have descended on the Caribbean island with the hope of creating a sort of cryptopia in the wake of Hurricane Maria. It's a country that has suffered enormously from um, a hurricane last year and its economy is a bit in shambles. And so it was just trying to attract some new business by a bit like Switzerland by saying, come on, Bitcoin users, you can come here and and create some new companies. Uh, But uh, Puerto Rico is such a poor country that um, it's, uh, well, some residents lack, you know, uh, energy, I mean, gas and electricity, some of them don't even have that. Uh, but actually, Bitcoin, uh, the, the Bitcoin businesses <laughs> themselves uh, demand a lot of that energy, uh, and which makes some people think, "Look, this is just really ridiculous, and it's just going to, you know, all that's going to happen is some really rich folks are going to go to Puerto Rico, uh, you know, maybe make some profit out out of their Bitcoin businesses, but a lot of poor people are actually going to suffer." There are other concerns too. I asked Tatiana Cutts, what are the social implications of cryptocurrency? Oh, huge and wide ranging, of course. Um, So there are lots of different dimensions to this. One is how do you design a payments infrastructure that is accommodating, that is welcoming, and which doesn't exclude certain aspects of the community from it? Bitcoin, the uptake of Bitcoin has been actually from a fairly narrow sector of society, and it, it is exclusive in some ways. Um, and then the, the same is true of that of the question about um, how do we want our data to be used online? Because if it's possible to store um, and manipulate and extract certain data about the way in which we conduct our transactions online, that inevitably has consequences for the way in which we um, adopt certain social stratas. And so that can be used by governments to direct, say, benefits towards certain people, but then um, control the way in which money is used. Um, and it can be used to um, create certain pools for financial services um, that can be directed towards individuals and not towards other individuals. So there's that social exclusion function and there's that um, social stratification function. Nigel Dodd agrees. 
So the, the, the issues are really complex. And I, I think actually a lot of people don't really get that because, you know, the biggest dystopian side of the regular financial world is that credit card companies, banks, PayPal, Amazon Pay, all the different digital currencies that we use, all the different digital payment systems we use, possess an awful lot of data about us uh, that can be used uh, in ways that we probably don't approve of. You know, how would you feel if you had a, an application for health insurance turned down because the health insurance company has a deal with Visa and they know that you're buying alcohol in the supermarket when you claim to be teetotal or that you've got you know, duty-free that says you know, Marlboro Lights or something? You know, how, would you, how would you feel about that? You know, you'd feel intruded upon. Many people are attracted to cryptocurrencies because they exist outside of state control. But what are the legal implications of that when someone steals cryptocurrency? As happened in 2016 when hackers stole 50 million of the cryptocurrency Ether in the Dow heist. I asked Tatiana Cutts if it is naive to think that technology can replace law. Yes, so technology can... uh, There are lots of things that you can determine purely by reference to technological solutions. So it's possible to verify whether particular states are in fact have in fact been brought about. What you can't do is make normative decisions, right? So it's fine to determine the location of a particular Bitcoin at a moment in time using a technological solution. But what happens if someone exploits the code and finds a way of misdirecting a certain amount of cryptocurrency? And of course, the DAO heist with Ethereum is an example of this. It's an example of a situation in which a hacker misdirects money. And you have two options. One is you say, code is law, that's it. He exploited, um, he or she exploited a gap in the code that allowed this to happen. And the other is to say, well, (laughs) something's gone wrong, right? So he or she did something that is morally, normatively wrong. Um, And we we want to come up with a way of of solving this um, problem and returning things to the state of affairs in which they would have been if this hadn't happened. And that was the choice that was made. And I think it will be the choice that's made um, on a continuing basis. Um, And if so, we need to have procedures for designing those those rules and those norms. And they can't be purely technological. Can cryptocurrencies survive without being regulated? That really depends what you mean by regulation. Um, Some intersection with the law is inevitable. It's actually interesting that from the very start, those acting within the Bitcoin sphere have asked for some type of regulation and have asked for states to engage with these questions because only then do you really have consumer confidence. Um, So I think there are some some parts of um, financial and social activity that can take place without regulation. But um, I think that we are moving towards a situation where, of course, as um, the spheres of activity grow, as more people engage with these, financial technologies, um, they will inevitably have to be regulated in some way. Does that mean they'll lose some of their attraction? Again, that depends. Um, Sometimes a great deal of attraction comes from regulation because you know that there's that backstop. Um, Sometimes regulation can be incredibly confidence-inspiring. One aspect of that might be this idea that um, the money that you have in your bank account is protected to some degree by the state, and that's some aspect of regulation that is incredibly attractive to people. For many people, Bitcoin is synonymous with criminal activity on the dark web. 
Perhaps many of us only knew that the online black marketplace, the Silk Road, existed because we heard that you could use Bitcoin to buy guns and drugs there. And yet Bitcoin, in contrast to cash, is not anonymous. Tatiana Katz explains how cryptocurrency transactions leave an indelible record. Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, all financial transactions that are conducted online are, to some extent, um, recorded, right? Um, So whenever you purchase something online, that uh, creates a data footprint and that information can be used. Often it's used to market other products to you more effectively. With Bitcoin, um, some aspects of that are made more difficult, um, but it's certainly not true to say that it's impossible to work out who you are and how you pay using Bitcoin. It's possible to use heuristics to, to some extent, deconstruct transactions and work out the the flow of funds through the system. Um, Some cryptocurrencies do that obfuscation process more effectively. Um, But this is a question that's much broader than just Bitcoin is like, what do we want when we're transacting online? Do we want more privacy? Do we want to be marketed to more effectively? So perhaps it's not surprising, although a little ironic, that the blockchain is being used in criminal investigations. Here's Garrick Hallman again. Yes, in fact, uh, authorities have had uh, significant success, I think, uh, taking the digital paper trail created on blockchains by criminal activity uh, with Bitcoin, for example, and using that to prosecute criminals and also recover assets. Um, when a cash criminal uh, is caught, there's oftentimes no record keep, you know, keeping system or books that the, the law enforcement officials can use. That's not the case with Bitcoin or any of these cryptocurrencies, which um, have public ledgers and where transactions are recorded. Now, it's not always easy to identify who's behind a particular transaction. So there is some sleuth work that needs to be done. There's some chain analysis work. Uh, but if you can um, you know, uh, successfully either capture the criminal's wallet software or through data analysis kind of put the pieces together, you can have a pretty good picture of, of what's happened and use that in court. And you may be able to recover the assets I mentioned. So countries like Bulgaria, which have rounded up big criminal gangs using cryptocurrency have actually collected billions Uh, of dollars worth of value um, from from in seizures. We hear a lot about the role of cryptocurrencies um, in crime and the dark web, but there's some more exciting mainstream possibilities, aren't there, for this technology? Absolutely. So I think one thing that uh, you you can look at blockchain and and cryptocurrency and see is is it's 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 caught up in this kind of broader trend of digitalization and automation. And so one of the kind of killer apps of blockchain technology is smart contracts, the ability really to automate um, the verification of activities or events and the payments uh, associated with those events. And so a good example uh, that I like to use in my teaching is the uh, case of a uh, a dog, a dog owner and a dog walker. And a busy dog owner hires a dog walker to take the dog for a walk. Um, But in this case, the dog owner doesn't fully trust maybe the the dog walker or they just wanna uh, automate payments. So they attach a GPS collar to the dog the dog goes out the, on the agreed upon five kilometer walk. And when the dog gets back to the house, it synchronizes uh, through the wireless internet to the say Ethereum blockchain, which has a smart contract, smart contract on it. Um, and, and basically a smart contract is a, a program running on what you can think of as the Ethereum operating system. And then that program checks the data sent from the dog's collar to see, oh yes, the dog did walk five kilometers. And then it automatically makes a payment to the dog walker. 
So I don't know how big a business uh, smart contract uh, dog walking is, maybe not such a big one, but it illustrates the point that you can um, basically verify automatically and make payments automatically with smart contracts and blockchain technology. And that's, I think, one of the more interesting ways this technology can be used. Are cryptocurrencies the future of money? And if not, what will be? Nigel Dodd gave me his answer. The future of money, if, I, I, if this was a video interview, I'd now be waving my phone at you and saying, this is the future of money. It, the, the future of money is more the conveyor of payments than, than the, the currency in which um, they're paid. And I think if, if crypto gets into the main rail tracks of the monetary system, which I think is increasingly going to be the mobile phone, more than credit cards and, and debit cards and plastic. I think that it has a chance of being part of the ecology of money, an, an increasingly complex and diverse ecology of money, um, which I think will always have a, a variety of currencies, different national currencies, corporate currencies, incentive currencies, local currencies. Um, There'll be, I think there is an increasingly complex, diverse monetary world, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. But what is changing is the, the, the payment systems underlying that, the infrastructure of the payment systems. And Bitcoin has its and, and Ethereum and so on, they have their own infrastructure, but it's not an infrastructure which is terribly user-friendly. If you want to go into a shop and spend money, um, it's really not easy to do it with Bitcoin. It's a lot easier to do it through paper. So that's, the, I think that's really the key is the future of money is to do with to do the actual payment system. And I think beyond um, the telephone, the next instrument of payment will be the body. Um, what I see happening is developments like Smile and Pay using all the technology that comes through the passport system and you can go into stores in South Korea or China now and uh, there's a similar technology at the point of pay that you find in, in an airport and you look at it and you've paid just like that you don't have to carry money you know imagine all you need is not a wallet to put in your pocket it's not a phone it's just your own body um, and I think that's also around the corner I think the next I can imagine smile and pay that kind of um, biometric use of money being being much closer than and so I think again that's going to be more important for most people than whether it's Bitcoin or the Brixton pound or the dollar or the euro. I asked Natasha Postel Vinay what would have to happen for cryptocurrencies to become mainstream. I think that a very important uh, uh, condition for this to happen would be that the government backs it up so that the government says, we're okay with this cryptocurrency. You guys can use it as much as you want, and we won't interfere with that process. The problem is that it's very unlikely to happen, um, I think. One of the reasons why this it would be really quite unlikely to happen in, in developed economies, in most developed economies, is that governments want to keep control of their own currency. So if you had a cryptocurrency that sort of existed alongside the pound or the euro, um, it would be a big problem for governments because governments want to keep control of their currency. 
Garrick Harman has actually used Bitcoin to buy products in the real world. Does he see this as the future? You know, right now, today, uh, they're not primarily being used as currencies. And that's why this term crypto asset has, I think, started to gain more, more traction to, to characterize what cryptocurrencies are. It's true you can spend Bitcoins for things like a Sunday roast at a pub in, in Cambridge, uh, which I've done. Uh, but that's not uh, how most people are using cryptocurrency for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, today, it's mostly a speculative instrument. Um, uh, cryptocurrency use on the dark web, yes, it's still happening, but that's actually a very small percentage of the value that's now transacted. It's mostly speculation. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to say uh, you know, for certain kind of what the future is going to be in five to 10 years. It seems pretty clear these aren't going away in the next few years, barring some kind of uh, you, know, uh, you know, cryptography meltdown where there's a fatal cryptographic flaw that craters the whole sector, which is, by the way, something that, that could happen, right? So, um, but it, it's, it's this complex, you know, kind of question, you know, uh, cryptocurrency sits at this kind of intersection between economics and technology and policy, and these three things are constantly evolving and shifting. And, and just when regulators are getting kind of their heads wrapped around kind of Bitcoin, and, and how it's exchanged. We now have new things like decentralized exchanges that are coming to existence that don't really have a central kind of operator and, 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 and will pose, I think, big challenges to, to regulators. So uh, it's impossible to know kind of, I think, where this all is going. It's just very interesting and does seem to be growing. That's that much we can say for certain. Finally, here's Tatiana Katz. I think that we won't see systems, monetary systems, where lots and lots of people are contributing to maintenance in the future. I think we will see lots and lots of currencies. Um, and these currencies may in fact be considerably less proprietary than the ones that we have. So I'm, what I mean is that money sits on a scale. There are, um, think of Amex points at one end of that scale, they are in some sense transferable, but only in some spheres. And there's lots of control that a company has over those. Um, the Linden dollar also sits on that scale. This is the currency of second life, which is um, characterized as a license, which is therefore transferable in some settings, but not in others. And money is all the way at the other end of that scale. And I think we will see lots of overlapping types of perhaps not full currencies, but reward systems, point systems, and particularly given the growth of activities like virtual reality. So I think we will see lots of overlapping currencies. And that raises all sorts of interesting questions about what it is about money that is so social, right? So the efficient thing would be for us all to share exactly the same monetary system. The fact that there are all these overlapping currencies tells you that money, currency, is something far more fundamental about us as individuals and about how we express ourselves online and on offline. Cryptocurrencies have many hurdles to overcome before they make it into our wallets, if they ever do. But the law of fortunes being made means that interest in them as instruments of speculation is unabated. Aside from the hype of cryptocurrencies, their underlying distributed ledger technology may evolve many more novel and interesting applications that are much more relevant to those of us who aren't crypto enthusiasts. Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ. This episode of LSEIQ was brought to you by Shay Forbes-Taylor, James Rattie, Tom Williams, Jess Winterstein and Sue Windybank. It was based in part on the following research. The Social Life of Bitcoin by Nigel Dodd, published in the journal Theory, Culture and Society. 
Alternative Currencies, a Historical Survey and Taxonomy by Garrick Hillman. For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSEIQ in your favourite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review on the Apple Podcasts app or on iTunes as it makes the podcast easier for new listeners to discover. Join us next time when we ask, do we need to rethink foreign aid?